The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Really appreciate the Daily Planet's endorsement, Perry. It's going to go a long way for us at the polls. <laughs> like you need it, Mr. President. Your approval rating's higher than a cat's back. You're a shoe-in. Oh, I never say shoe-in, my friend. Mr. President, what are your thoughts on this third-party writing candidate, John Doe? John Doe? <laughs> Some ad man's idea of a joke. The election's tomorrow, and still nobody's seen the guy. No, the mysterious John Doe doesn't worry me, Mr. Kent. It's exciting, isn't it? I, I don't get it. What's that to get? John Doe's campaign is catching fire. His message is resonating with the people. It cuts across all barriers. M message? Lois, what message? Well, you know. No, I don't. Uh, no one's even seen this guy, let alone heard any message. Lois, why are you suddenly so... Why is everyone suddenly so taken with a candidate they, they know nothing about? Well, I'm not taken. I'm still a Garner supporter. But you have to admit, John Doe really is... What, a, a darn nice guy? Yeah. London. It's Thursday, October 15, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today where the number to call is 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on our open line conversation. Today's subjects, we're going to be talking about polling in general, energy in specific, local cases and politics and basically a whole bunch of local issues in terms of what the top issues are here in London, Ontario. And joining myself and Robert Vaughn in the studio today is... Dr. Kimball Ainsley, president of Nordex Research. Good morning, Kim. How are you? How are you today? Nice to see you. Yeah, and uh, actually we met at a tax protest again a couple of weeks ago, if I recall, all three of us. That's right, we but I, 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 I was in the deep back background on that, uh, Robert. <laughs> Well, I thought I was too until I got up and said a few words there but about what was going on locally. But it seems to be part of an issue that speaks to some of the things that uh, you have been talking about in the media. Now, most Londoners would know you from basically Nordex research, from a lot of the polls that show up in the papers, on elections, on, uh, on public issues of various sorts. And I thought what we'd do today... Uh, given, by the way, this, this wonderful memo you sent is probably the best our, a guest has ever supplied us with in terms of, of areas we can cover. So what I thought we'd do, I thought we'd, we'd start off with the local stuff and local politics, if that's good with you guys. And I'm, then we'll I'm switch, happy to enjoy. And then we'll switch to energy later on, and at the end we'll talk about some... I've got a couple of philosophical issues with uh, polling in general that, that might be a, of interest. But... Um, so off the top, what are the top issues in London? I mean, you do the polls. How, who conducts them? Who, who pays for these things? And uh, how do they arrive at, at these particular conclusions? Well, in terms of who pays, I guess the best answer is clients pay. Uh, for a long time, we actually used to uh, have a business group in town that was terribly interested in local issues. And so they would uh, uh, ask me to, uh, on a near quarterly basis, go into the field and find out what uh, Londoners were thinking because they, they had a concern and they had a stake. But frankly, uh, um, by far the majority 
of individuals soliciting are um, uh, incumbent politicians and potential um, incumbents, that mm. is, candidates for office. And, uh, and frankly, uh, you know, we've already started to uh, put our toe in the water for the elections next year. Uh, and so... Uh, the uh, municipal elections you're referring yeah, to? These campaigns start early and earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I remember uh, in 2003 when we first got uh, seriously involved with uh, one particular candidate, and in fact we managed that campaign in addition to doing the research and all the rest of it, uh, we were out of the gates in January that year. So right. Interesting. Early, early so, on. So, so the big issues, what are they in London? What are, what are Londoners talking about? If I were to read the newspapers today, by the way, I, I would think the big issue was uh, uh, London to stage first blitz on idling. <laughs> and I see London's really well uh, managed, according to the Londoner here. What made London one of the best-run cities you see in the Londoner? And well, we that's, see uh, that's what the local elites like to talk about, and I guess I've been hammering my head against the wall for quite some time, along with many of these clients, because the top issues, to tell you the truth, are really quite stable. People are concerned right on the top uh, with economic growth and jobs, and particularly mm -hmm. now during this recession. And right close next to that is taxation, property taxation, and it's, uh, you know, it always seems to be rising. Uh, crime has been a fairly stable issue. Uh, we, we, we can't get the local police department to take community policing seriously. Uh, we have through a couple of campaigns. We've pulled that to death. Uh, and so that's uh, uh, another uh, uh, really quite important issue. And, and roads in, in, study, in the city. Right now, for example, people are just fed up with the uh, uh, strangled traffic, uh, poor conditions of roads. And here we have another... Um, Is uh, London very different from other cities in that regard? Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just finish up. We've got a master uh, transportation, transportation plan coming up right now, and, and none of it is dealing with the things that people are interested in. They're really interested in, uh, you know, con the condition of the roads, widening of the roads, making auto transportation uh, acceptable to folks. And this transportation plan is almost exclusively focused on transit, which is a, another disconnect with the public. As, as in, in public government-run transit, you mean? Well, that's right. Now, in, in reference to other communities across Ontario, yeah, yeah there are comparable issues, and uh, those communities are are better run or worse run compared to London. Uh, I can think of one city that I actually um, recently lived in, the uh, city of Toronto, probably worst run city in the, in the country. Uh, so by comparison, actually, London is better, to tell you the truth. So. Interesting. Um, you surprised me with your comment on crime. You said you're having a hard time uh, convincing the police about community policing or, or, or getting the message through. What was? Yeah, there has been a, an entrenched philosophical opposition to community uh, policing. That is parking um, substations in the communities across London. Uh, and we, we just can't, back, back, I remember the first time this was raised with the folks at the police department in 1994 campaigns, I recall. And, uh, you know, we, we just couldn't get them to come around to the idea. We, we, the idea to them, in many respects, seemed almost offensive. And yet there's this overwhelming demand by people to have, you know, stability in terms of uh, crime prevention in the neighborhoods. And um, and so our suggestion had been, put, why not put substations in the various malls mm -hmm. of London. I mean, London is organized by its malls, and it seemed to be a good place, and people liked the idea, but again, uh, not much attention. Uh, you know, and for years and years, we've been trying to, to work out uh, plans to fix up that downtown. It's now become just a ghetto. People run around, keep telling me how, how wonderful the downtown well, is. Well, that's you what know, we read all, all the time. All I have to do is look at the difference. <laughs> you know, 
you saying that is a radical thing to be say, saying in the media in this town because every time you pick up the papers, well, here you go. What makes London one of the best-run cities? And they talk about how many improvements we've had downtown, and the downtown seems you know it keeps getting better all the time. Well, we've we've had these huge tax credits go to the uh, large developers to big, uh, to build uh, large apartment or condo buildings, and that's fine, good good for them. They're they're engaged in that kind of development, but it certainly has insisted uh, you know Richmond and Dundas, where in a sense we have some state-induced crime uh, area down there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the individuals who are on welfare go down there on a regular basis, and and um, frankly, bad things follow from that when there's such a concentration of those kinds of individuals. You know, I actually sat on the Crime Prevention Advisory Committee a number of years ago, and I brought up the issue of community policing because I thought that was a, an issue that um, would resonate with the people and actually prevent a lot of the crimes that we have now, but I was stonewalled right from the beginning, told flat out don't even bother bringing it up. It's not going to happen. And I uh, had to inquire why. And basically the response was that they thought that policemen who aren't in their cars, who are walking the beat, who are local to neighborhoods, are going to get corrupted and bought off and paid off and bribed and start to... <laughs> right out of the 1930s or something. And I'm, it was absolutely amazing, the, um, the stonewalling that I had on that issue and thinking that, well, no, we like what we're doing now. Cops in cars... You know, central location, that's it, forget it. No no districts, no community, no kiosks, no nothing, no beat walking. And uh, I was astounded. Didn't get anywhere with it. Nowhere. Well, you you just uh, you you're reiterating a, a, an experience that we've had, uh, Robert, uh, on, on this matter. It's a very frustrating thing, I must say. And and, and yet people, uh, in terms of the electorate, ordinary folks, the middle class, they just crave more stability in terms of crime prevention. It, uh, you know. I remember Robert when you were all, you were also on the police board and I had to go there. No, not the police board, or, or, crime prevention advisory committee. Crime, yeah, sorry. Were you also on the police board? Or no, on, oh, crime prevention alone. Okay, and I remember lighting was a big issue too. Oh yes, yeah, and, at that time. Yeah. And there was a great resistance to even that, and I couldn't understand it. You know, like what 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 are they concentrating on? Where where is the money going? What do they think the priorities are? Well, you know, I, I like to tell the tale sometimes in my um, uh, darker moments. I uh, watch a police car go down the street, and I say, well, there's a quarter million dollars there, and, you know, two policemen in a car. Uh, they're a very expensive operation in this city. And yet uh, an awful lot of the public, just not us who are sort of uh, sort of voice these concerns from time to time, the public is very concerned that they're not getting a proper service on this. And, and frankly, this is not a money problem, gentlemen. This is an organization of police problem. Uh, the Americans have figured it out a long time ago. I'm not sure why we can't. Interesting. Now, um, boy, time's flying. Taxation. Um, you know, I keep being told, you know, by folks like yourself, and it's my own belief as well, that taxes are like a number one or number two issue among people. Yet when you go out there and you talk about taxes in general, um, in my own experience, I've been involved with a lot of anti-tax groups, including uh, Hold All London Taxes, London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition, groups like even now the Forest City Institute. Um, I don't you know. Taxpayers are, have become kind of cynical about any political promises to even suggest lowering taxes. I don't think they even take any such candidates seriously anymore. And uh, they've been lied to so long that, and I agree that it's it's an issue with them because they hate paying them. It hurts, you know. But they don't really come to the fore and come out and support the the, the uh, lower tax candidates as much as you should, you know. I'm surprised everyone's not right behind Paul Van Meerberg and like full well, steam. Well, on, on the other hand, Paul got elected in 2006 but, uh, seven, with a 
plurality. So Which majority, is pretty strong. That's, that's, that's amazing. A, that's uh, truly amazing. That's the heart of what I sometimes describe as state-financed uh, middle-class uh, territory in London. <laughs> uh, lot, lots of teachers, lots of police officers, and others who are uh, who receive government salaries, and yet Paul gets elected. So uh, I, I guess I don't buy the argument. Here, here are the three options that we have raised with Londoners over the course of the last oh, decade or more. Uh, do, do you want a, a tax cut? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. that's that's part of the mix. Do you want a tax freeze, or, or frankly, do you want a tax increase to pay for more services? The most recent question we asked was, should that be a 5% increase, a 5% cut, or a tax freeze? And on this round, just frankly, uh, a few weeks ago, 71% said they wanted a freeze, uh, 12% said they wanted an increase, bless their hearts, uh, 9% wanted a tax cut, and the rest are none of the above or don't know. Now, that compares, by the way, to previous I f- years. I find even that very surprising, but, but finish your point, and then I'll get to my question. Uh, the, uh, the folks who want a tax freeze now is up 10 points from 2006. So more people are... And we're now saying to these folks, it's a tax freeze, by the way, with some cuts. You can't have a tax freeze just because the way it works out technically in budgets mm-hmm. without some cuts. And by the way, the 5% cut involves major cuts to the budget. And so we had the individuals who decided to, to go with that. For example, in uh, 2006, uh, let me go back to, uh, don't have it right in front of me. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, but it, it, anyway, it's uh, overall, um, I'm still the approach to this has been stable. The tax freeze approach has always been acceptable. And here's the kicker, Robert. Okay. Folks accept the idea of fewer services. So the old saw by politicians that you can't cut because people will demand the same services or want more services, that's just not so. And here's the list. They want fewer recreational services. They want fewer library services and buildings. So big box uh, recreational buildings are Mm -hmm. no longer wanted. Even splash pads they don't want. And here's another thing that was fascinating. They don't want, uh, uh, frankly, large community grants by the city. So these uh, grants, for example, recently being discussed to the Goodwill or to the uh, Orchestra London or Theatre London and all of these, they are not fussy on those grants at all. Well, Kim, do you remember, was it Proposition 13 back in in California many years ago where the uh, residents said that they didn't want an increase in their property taxes and probably with the mind of what you're saying that they're going to cut all the trim and trim the fat. But what they ended up doing once they won that Proposition 13 was they stopped fixing the roads, they stopped fixing the sewers and the waters, they stopped, they stopped spending the money on the essential services to punish the public for actually daring to suggest that we don't raise their taxes. In fact, they've done it here, Robert. Uh, not surprised. For year, <laughs> uh, up to just two years ago, we were punished by not having sufficient road uh, uh, improvement funding. And London, ro- London's roads for a good solid five years just went downhill. We're now into a stage of much greater improvement, much more money going that way. Last year was the highest financing of road improvements that we've seen yet, and hopefully that will continue. Um, but, but the same tricks are tried here. But the, but the interesting thing is that folks, that is the electorate, are perfectly willing to see certain set of, of services cut. Now, they're not going to be police services or fire services, and it's not going to be snow plowing and that kind of thing, or roads, mm-hmm. but it is going to be these other things, what we call the social spending that goes on in the city, which, by the way, is up now to 40% of spending on the budget. 
That's uh, that's that's just amazing. Listen, we're going to have to take a, a quick break here, and um, I want to find out more about this transportation plan issue, and then a little bit more about citizen action going on in the city. Uh, this clip coming up, by the way, uh, both of them are from uh, different episodes of uh, the British comedy uh, Yes, Prime Minister, and of course, they're go- it's a it's a show almost about government, really. And uh, here they're talking about the transportation plan and some of the political baggage that comes along with anyone trying to form a transportation plan. Then on the other side, they'll be talking about citizen action, and we'll bring that to our own local community as we return after this. I've been asked to formulate and develop an integrated national transport policy. (laughs) Minister, you're not serious. (laughs) Yes, it's an honor. After all, we do need a transport policy. If by we you mean Britain, that is perfectly true. But if by we you mean you and me in this department, we need a transport policy like an aperture in the cranial cavity. <laughs> it is a bit of nails. Look, I realise it may cause some extra administrative problems for you, Humphrey. I realise Minister, that. that is not the point. The reason there has never been an integrated transport policy is that such a policy is in everybody's interest except the minister who creates it. Why? <laughs> Now, how can I put it in a manner which is close to your heart? It is the ultimate vote loser. Minister, this hideous appointment has been hurtling around Whitehall for the last three weeks, like a grenade with the pin taken out. (laughs) If I could pull it off, it would be a feather in my cap. If you pull it off, Minister, no one will feel the benefits for ten years. And long before that, you and I will have moved on. Or up. Or out. In the meantime, formulating policy means making choices. Once you do that, you please the people that you favour, but you infuriate everybody else. One vote gained, ten lost. sit down. Now tell me, what is wrong with local government? Well, it's a them and us situation. The local authority ought to be us. Us the people or us the government? In a democracy, that ought to be the same thing. Yes, we all know it, isn't it? No, I mean us the people. They ought to be running things for us. They ought to be part of us, but they're not. They're running things for them, for their power, for their convenience and their benefit. Yes, I know that. So what's the answer? Fight them. No, make them us. How do you mean? Well, suppose you want to stop a major government project. What do you do? Join the civil service. (laughs) No, I mean if you're an ordinary person. I can't really remember what that was like. (laughs) Judging from the opinion polls, you're soon going to find out. Just imagine you're an ordinary person, Jim. Well, I'll try. And imagine you want to to stop a road-widening scheme or a new airport being built near your house. Now, what do you do? Write your local MP. And that does the trick? Well, no, of course not. But that's what ordinary people do. <laughs> ordinary people are stupid. Is that why they elect? Stop barracking, darling, please. That's a good girl. I'm trying to understand what Dorothy's driving at. Ordinary people form a group to fight official plans they don't want. And this group represents the local people. Now, this group is different from the local authority because the local authority doesn't really represent the local people. Why not? Well, because councillors are all drawn from tiny little local political parties. When a local community really cares about an issue, they form a committee. And then they go round the streets, they talk to people in the supermarkets and on the doorstep, they drum up support and raise money. And this money isn't like the rates. 
It's spent on what people actually want it spent on. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation with myself, Robert Vaughn, and our guest, uh, Kim Ainsley, president of Nordex Research, and we're talking about local politics, transportation. Uh, Kim, is there any truth to that... Uh, to what we just heard in a couple of those clips, is, is having a transportation plan, you know, be in a political sense, almost like a death knell? Like, because the politicians who put something in today aren't going to be around for 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 the the glory. Let's put it, you know, in the far future. Is is that is maybe some of that what's behind uh, trying to get not being able to achieve a, a viable, long-term, clear, understood transportation plan? Well, strictly speaking here in the city, um, because frankly, the public servants, the senior public servants really r run the decision-making. Mm -hmm. When they decide on a, on a transportation plan, and, and they hire the consultants and they go out and they do the, their shtick with the public, uh, they then write down the document, usually 100 pages, and they stick to it. Uh, they really do. Uh, uh, they have uh, uh, funding items attached to that plan. Uh, so, for example... Now, that's after the plan's been written and done. Th that's right. So, in the 2002 plan, the most recent one, for example, you, they can through it and actually tick off the projects they've completed. So, here in London, they, you know, the bureaucrats stick to their plans. So, so what is the issue as you see it behind the, uh, the expressway corridor issue that, that you, you sent us a little memo about here? Well, this is uh, the expressway around city, sometimes popularly known as the Ring Road, the Ring Road yeah. has been on the public mind now for uh, at least 15 years. Yeah. Uh, we've been picking it up. Uh, probably higher demand in the past. Uh, people are, in a sense, worn out in their demand for it and with no uh, opportunity to see anything going on. We have seen, frankly, some uh, movement on the east side with uh, Veterans Parkway, uh, although, by gollies, they've got a long way to go to you know, take out those stoplights. I mean, we, we now need ramps. We need a real expressway going on here. The big problem has been the, the blockage on the north end. We had a corridor established, for example, along Sunningdale Road up to about uh, 1995. And that, uh, through machinations on city council and uh, uh, interest that had, had, had to be served, uh, got wiped out. So, for example, we now have altogether too much residential up there in order to have a corridor. So now where are we going to put the northern corridor of the uh, of It the can't be just stretched further out from the residential? We, or? Could, we could go uh, north, but then they're in the, to the village of uh, Arva. Oh, uh, and, and <laughs> running so, into a few other people. Uh, you could put it in between, but but somehow somebody's got to decide on a corridor, um, and, and then of course on the uh, on the western side is pretty easy. You know, Westbourne Drive or whatever the, that West little road is, uh, Sure, well, whatever it's called, I, uh, that could be the uh, on, on the west side. And the idea is you'd link up with the 402. Right. So in effect, you're, you're linking the 401. Is this to the actually going ahead? Is this thing a, a sort of, a, well, if not totally clear, semi a done deal? Uh, none. <laughs> None, it's nothing. De de des a doornail. Um, it was much more alive a few years ago. Uh, I, I, I must say that the gateway project out of the airport has enlivened some discussion about uh, 400 series roads and express expressways and what have you. But here's the kicker about the uh, expressway. People don't want it just for, in a sense, to relieve congestion in the city because, of course, 
it doesn't relieve congestion at Richmond and Dundas, does it, mm. obviously. They want it for economic development purposes. And, and we sort of tapped into this almost by accident, by, by open-ended questions. And so you're, you say you have a few questions about polling. And, boy, we're, we're great believers because sometimes you get things coming out of the public you never even dreamed about. Mm -hmm. So they think that an expressway is best for economic development. That is, the industries that would locate on either side of the expressways around the city. And that would, of course, mean more jobs and a better economy. Excellent. We're, we're, com we're coming to the bottom of the hour so quick, and I wanted to get to this issue before we do. And um, you said you had some promising evidence, some cases locally showing... Uh, which to me almost sounds like a citizen action against their government in a way, or trying to get the government to uh, to do what they would like them to do. What were some of those uh, positive signs? That well, you there, saw? there's a fascinating new trend going on in London that we picked up. I, well, I guess I was an early detector of it, just in terms of being out and around in, in London. Uh, we have what we call a new business aggressiveness uh, at City Hall. That is, more and more businesses are taking City Hall to task um, in, in what we describe as a kind of a defensive reaction against City Hall intervention, particularly coming out of the planning department. So we have identified, for example, five cases, and, and lots of people around town will know about them, they'll recognize them, starting, for example, in 2007 with the uh, Keeping London Growing Coalition. That group uh, did a reasonably good job in raising issues related to residential growth, for example, in the city for their uh, particular uh, members in the, in the building industry. Uh, the drive-through issue, people will remember that. Um, well, I uh, certainly do. I was involved in it as well. Uh, uh, Out-of-town <laughs> businesses, in this particular case, mm -hmm. Hortons and McDonald's, uh, got their uh, particular employees just fired up royally, and uh, and they I pushed back on the uh, clo closing down of the drive-throughs. The bureaucrats will say, oh, no, we weren't, weren't going to close them down, but the facts are they were. That was the long-term plan, and that got put off, so that was a success. Um, the uh, London District Heavy Construction Association actually went ahead with a campaign last year called Infrastructure Now, and so they're pushing more infrastructure projects. And this was the first time we saw billboards on the subject quite literally around town. There were four or five of them. Then we have the London Development Institute pushing back on development charges. They actually tore up a deal at the end, nearly tore up a deal at the end, saying, listen, we are not satisfied with the way these development charges are going and who's being pressed on them, particularly people who live in local suburbs. And then finally, the fat, most fat fascinating one was this rental tax issue that came up with the London Property uh, Management Association at City Hall and others who who forced City Council to back down um, on, ch on charging uh, this so-called rental tax on buildings. Uh, I thought uh, it went through. Uh, well, actually, uh, much watered down. Uh, it's now only uh, uh, going after uh, buildings with four units or less. You know, I have and a suspicion that's... a $25 that's charge. I have a suspicion that's all they were after in the first place. So, um, you know, with the drive through Believe me, they're after a lot more. Well, <laughs> you know, you always ask for more, but even with the drive through thing, when I, I studied that very closely, I got the minutes after, and um, that was a big loss, I thought, for, for the drive through industry, except uh, unless you want a little bit of a monopoly, because they put some real stringent regulations on new drive throughs especially anything in restaurants built in downtown. Uh, n n nothing pressing. Um, our interpretation is that, that that was pretty much left clean. Uh, there is, in fact, uh, uh, folks inside the engineering department regard that as an object lesson on what not to do with business. Uh, uh, folks in the planning department had their wrists slapped on that. Um, 
uh, I think we have to be kind of sanguine well, about that that victory. From what I saw, I, I saw that in the future, if um, if somebody wants to build a new restaurant in certain designated areas, drive-through type, um, they have to do all kinds of things like provide a bus, uh, pl- a place for people to stand for the bus. Like a lot of things that would normally be a municipality's responsibility are kind of being shoved over to the, the private sector, and I think they, they're going to have to do that. The future people, the people who are already there now, sure, they got away with it, but I don't think they paved a very uh, bright road for some people that might want to enter that industry in the future. That might be something they see as a benefit, too. Cut down on the competition. <laughs> well, tell you you truth, uh, Hortons and McDonald's did offer up some amelioration in terms of the, of the way they structure these mm-hmm. things, particularly the, the distance that the, the cars get to sort of you know line up right. before they get their coffees and their, and their donuts. Um, but I, I guess it's our interpretation that, that was pretty much a, a victory. So... Excellent. Um, any anything else we want to say about before we switch our subject over, or is anything that you really wanted to get off your chest about local politics? Uh, well, uh, we can uh, later in the program talk about this uh, problem of growth. There are many in, sure. the, in the community are, are saying that growth doesn't pay for itself. We take an opposite <laughs> view on that. Okay, let's. Uh, we're going to take a break now, and um, when we come back, we're going to do a radical change in subject area. We're going to be talking about um, basically energy in Ontario and Canada, I guess. And um, what we're going to hear next as we go into this break is has been taken from the uh, 2007 Ontario provincial election. And you'll be hearing Dalton McGinty, John Tory Howard Hampton being interviewed by Steve Pakin, specifically on their take on energy issues in Ontario. And when we come back from the other side of the ads, we'll hear their, uh, their little debate uh, on that, and then we'll, we'll see what we say about those things and get your take on that after the break. Okay, Kim? Uh, and we'll be back right after this. Uh, Mr. Tory, this question is for you, and the topic yes. is energy. Okay. Uh, both you and the Liberals say we need to invest billions of dollars in new nuclear plants. Those opposed say we have not yet begun to scratch the surface on other options such as conservation, which they say could make the need for these plants unnecessary. So the question is, do we really need these new nuclear facilities in Ontario? Yes, I think we do. And I think it's because, in part, uh, Mr. McGinty has, has wasted a lot of time over the course of the last, the last four years. Again, he made a solemn promise uh, to close down the coal plants, which I think he knew it could never be kept. And in the meantime, there have been terrible damage done uh, to the health of people across the province. But just as importantly, or not just as importantly, but certainly an important consideration at the same time, is the fact that that whole period of time while he pretended he was going to close them was not spent reviewing other options and moving ahead. And one of those is more nuclear power. Yes, I'm committed to renewable energy, to more solar, to more wind, to more conservation. We should do everything we can, but we need the baseload power to be absolutely sure that we can have energy in place to supply our industries and make sure the jobs are protected, and that we have to do that in a way that I think is reliable, greenhouse gas emission-free, and that Thank means Thank you, nuclear. Mr. Troy. Mr. McGinty, your chance. You know, the electricity sector was in pretty sad shape when we are in the privilege of serving Ontarians as their government, and we just scraped by, in fact, our very first summer. But we quickly got to work, rolled up our sleeves. We brought 3,000 megawatts of new generation online. There's 10,000 more megawatts in the pipeline. And yes, an important dimension of a of a healthy mix of electricity supply because the government is responsible for ensuring a reliability of supply is going to include nuclear. But we also have a fast, the fastest growing renewable sector, and I think this is very exciting, in all of North America. When I got this job, there were 10 wind turbines. Now there are 700 built or underway. Just outside of Sarnia, we're building the largest solar farm in North America. So yes, nuclear is an important part of the mix, but we're going to pursue conservation and renewables at the same time. Thank you, Mr. McGinty. Mr. Hampton, your answer. 
Mr. McGinty and Mr. Tory are both wrong on this. Mr. McGinty's uh, energy policy, uh, when you look at it, is about going nuclear and going big. And Mr. Uh, Tory's policy is about going nuclear and going bigger. Uh, and let me tell you, Ontario's had a sad history with nuclear power. Darlington Nuclear Station was supposed to cost about $4 billion. It ended up costing almost $15 billion, an $11 billion cost overrun. And you pay for that on your hydro bill in terms of the debt retirement charge. Here's what we need to do. We need to make energy efficiency the center point of our electricity program. We need to provide people with low interest loans so they can retrofit their homes, purchase energy efficient appliances, and reduce their energy consumption. And do the same with institutions like schools and hospitals and industry. That's the way forward. Thank you, Mr. Hampton. Open debate, gentlemen, starting with Mr. Torrey. Mr. Tory, three and a half minutes. Well, I just really think we should come back to the fact that you spent four years during which you really didn't address these issues because you were so busy not wanting to explain why you weren't going to keep your word on closing the coal plants. You said you were going to close those coal plants, and I quote, come hell or high water. That's what you said, come hell or high water. And they're not closed. They're not going to be closed. You didn't put scrubbers well, on them to clean up the health. And in the meantime, in the meantime, well, actually, the only one you've closed was started by the, the former PC government, and you know that. So but having said government that, look, closed a coal what fired you've station. done is you, you won't sort of fess up here and say, look, we really have to make a commitment. You're kind of maybe a bit for nuclear energy on Monday and maybe on Wednesday, maybe not so much for it anymore. We've got to move ahead. Jobs and investment depend on this. You're kind of half into it. You haven't really committed yourself to moving ahead quickly with it, which I will do. Uh, because we've got to do it, we've got to get on with it, because we're going to run out of energy. Otherwise, well, that will cost us jobs, and it will be a terrible thing for the Ontario Equal time economy. for Mr. McGinty, please. You're, you're making this up. Uh, we've been very committed to About nuclear the from the outset. Uh, we've sat down and worked with all the parties involved. You will know it's a very complex matter to consider the construction of new nuclear generation in Ontario. We're going to go ahead with that. We think it's essential. I, I just can't agree with with Mr. Hampton's proposal that we eliminate one half of our electricity today in the province of Ontario comes from nuclear generation. I agree with you. We've got to pursue conservation aggressively. We've got to pursue renewables. We've got to make Mr. sure that people buy energy-efficient appliances. Conservation but you know, energy I think we have to be reasonable and realistic. You're not, you're not we pursuing are not a, those things. We don't have a, a, a magnificent uh, geography in the way that Quebec or Manitoba does, or Newfoundland for that matter, when it comes to hydroelectric capacity. We, we're going to have Mr. to have nuclear for the Mr. foreseeable Mr. Beginning, future. Here's, here is the reality, and I, I want people to know this. California has reduced their electricity consumption by 12,000 megawatts over what it otherwise would have been. 12,000 megawatts represents three Darlington nuclear plants. So three times 15 billion dollars. Manitoba, a small province, has reduced their electricity consumption by 500 megawatts. Through energy efficiency, people can get a loan so they can retrofit their home. They can put in high-efficiency natural gas heating. They can put in solar hot water heaters. They can purchase energy-efficient appliances. We can reduce our electricity consumption in this province substantially. But we've wasted four years under the McGinty government. And I think people should know, Steve, that one of the first things they did when they came to office was to cancel the program that was there for energy-efficient appliances. And guess when they brought it back? a few weeks before the election. This is the way, unfortunately, Mr. McGinty has operated. It's not the way a strong leader operates. You've got to have a plan. You've got to be really committed to conservation. They put it, they, I, I will say this, they put an ad campaign on too. That's good. They had an ad campaign, but that's it. 
an ad campaign and cancellation of projects, and then at the last minute, when we're about to have the election, suddenly you see the light. Last and you bring 20, forward conservation. Last programs. twenty seconds. This is not leadership. There are a number of there are a number of great programs in place. Maybe I'll just take this opportunity to remind Ontarians that they can go out there. They can buy energy efficient appliances today, and save the sales tax. They can get up to a five thousand dollar rebate when it comes to energy retrofits. We're the first province in Canada to ban, to ban energy inefficient light bulbs. And we're putting smart meters in our homes so that. So that we know when you're using electricity, if you're using it during the non-rush hour period, then we can charge you less for it. Smart meters will simply drive up the hydro bill. Gentlemen, I'm getting in here because time's up. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. And we includes myself, Robert Vaughn, and Kim Ainsley, who's with us from Nordex Research. Kim, what did you make of that conversation we just heard? Well, actually, it was a, um, a reasonable conversation. Certainly, the options were set out. Um, the dirty little secret in Ontario is that we are committed to 50% nuclear. And whether you like that or not, uh, that's in the works. The Liberal government supports it. Um, and, uh, the um, Deputy Premier Smith Smitherman is pushing uh, wind power, of course. And that's just a big, big loser for Ontario. Uh, with the, the greatest possible uh, respect to uh, folks on the other side. Uh, notwithstanding, by the way, the health issues on on, uh, on wind. Um, and in the end, they're going to have to uh, rely, because they're, they've got this no-coal policy, that is the elimination of coal plants, they're going to have to rely on uh, a reinvigoration and, and some brand new uh, gas fire plants. And in fact, they've got uh, one up and running in uh, the north end of uh, uh, York region, and another one slated for Nanticoke um, down near uh, Lake Erie. So, uh, you know, so much for carbon reductions. You know, isn't it funny that in any other industry, you'd be want the uh, the people who own the industry would be out there saying, "Buy our product, use our product." But when it comes to energy generation or power, you've got the utility services out there saying, "Don't use our product. You know, conserve. Don't buy our product." Same you know, with any government-run health care. Of course, it's all rationed, and I don't think they'll be satisfied until we're dark as night as North Korea. Well, there there is a, uh, another nasty <laughs> little bit of business for for the ratepayers of Ontario too on that matter, and it's on the question of natural conservation. So, for example, people go out and, and buy uh, uh, electric products and services that are uh, conserving energy and, and the like. Uh, less is used uh, by the local utility uh, or are pumped out by the local utility and what have you. They go off to the Ontario Energy Board and, by the way, they get compensated for that. So, less electricity, more money back to the local utilities. And, of course, that's money paid by the ratepayers. You know, I think the uh, hallmark of any civilization actually is is um, directly proportional to the amount of energy and power they use. If you look at New York City or Tokyo at night, it's an absolutely amazing sight to see all that energy in use. And I think that's actually a good thing. You look at the North Korea from space, it's blacked out. <laughs> I think there's a, a correlation there, and the, the way we're trying to actually get away from using energy, I think it has to be rethought. Why don't we just privatize the whole darn thing and get get done with it and have people out there providing us with, with energy at, the, at actual cost and competing? Well, if there's more private sector initiatives in Ontario, and, and some of that is being encouraged by the Ontario Power Authority uh, now, uh, it, it, it is a bit tepid, but certainly we'd have a lot more sources of electricity, and frankly, our electricity would be cheaper. Mm -hmm. It seems odd to me, too, that we're in an era where everybody, the governments are all into stimulating the economy, while at the same time telling us all to cut back. Don't consume, on the one hand, with power, but hey, consume, consume, consume over here for these industries that need your help. And so it's so hypocritical. I just... I, I just want to throw a brick at the TV or the radio, 
not radio, but uh, <laughs> you know, anytime I hear this stuff, I just uh, it, it amazes me that what? don't so, they hear the total opposite message coming out of the same mouth? Sometimes you you wonder if uh, the implicit objective is not to uh, have us all reside in the cold root cellar. You, you know. <laughs> Actually, you know, some of them, I think that that is, the, that is the mindset of a lot of them. Very tribalistic, very back to basics. Let's get back to the cave. You know, listening to that conversation we just heard with, with the former two-party leaders and uh, McGinty, doesn't it sound a lot like the policies being followed by, by the government now are, are exactly the policies that Hampton was talking about in that debate? Cut back. All we hear in, in terms of propaganda is conservation kind of propaganda. We don't hear production propaganda. Could it be that the, that the government is trying to buy time? That, because I know they had a real problem with um, they can't get the nukes up quick enough. They're having problem with them. So while they're telling us to cut back, and they've been so fortunate that that, that global warming is a hoax anyway, because we're in one of the coldest October's we've had, and uh, that they're buying time so they can get the power up by the time something recovers. There's just no question that they're buying time as a pragmatic matter mm. uh, because we were in a, a really quite serious uh, crisis, as frankly uh, the Premier uh, uh, noted in that debate uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, things are better off but because, by the way, they're going back to relying on the old standards. Nuclear, and they, and they are, um, have plans to build more nuclear plants in this province and more gas fire plants. We've already started that in... Uh, and they're doing that in, like gangbusters right now across the province. Now, the scam is on these wind turbines uh, that we have now across the uh, province. Uh, they are, uh, uh, by even the Ontario Power Authority's own uh, uh, estimates, only 17% of nameplate energy. So in other words, the effective energy coming out of a wind uh, turbine is about one-fifth of its uh, nameplate designation, that is, its theoretical designation. And it is described generally by the engineers as what we call intermittent power. So it's not base power, it's not like nuclear, it's not peak power, for example, like coal, uh, it's intermittent power. It comes and goes, you can't control it, and it is uncontrollable. Is wind power, does it go straight into the grid, or does it not go into some storage, battery storage system of some sort at first? Or when we I'm have not even sure how that works. When we have su uh, sufficient online, it will go onto the grid. Uh, a lot of wind power, though, currently is what we call distributed generation, where quite literally it goes to some local uh, consuming unit. So, for example, uh, the, uh, the, the, the wind farm or the wind turbine itself is within a mile or two, maybe five miles, and then the, uh, the place where it actually consumes the electricity is within that radius. So it's not going into the grid to you know, be shipped off to the GTA, for example. Hmm. Now, but nuclear, you look at the other side, um, one can see the advantages of it. Isn't it, though, in the hands of government, a, a fiscal disaster? I mean, it took Howard Hampton to point out that they had a $4 billion budget and it ran overran to $15 billion. Well, actually, Isn't that uh, what we're going to be looking at with nuclear all along the way? You're absolutely right. And a fellow uh, uh, that uh, preceded me, uh, where I used to uh, do some work at the um, uh, energy probe in Toronto, a fellow named Tom Adams. Tom uh, Adams is our first guest on the show here. That's right. Yeah. You had mentioned that to me earlier. And Tom, uh, quite a astutely pointed out that the, the, the big problem with nuclear wasn't necessarily the waste, although that's a huge problem, but rather the cost. Mm -hmm. They're just hugely expensive, and of course 
frankly, uh, nuclear darn near bankrupted this province at one point. Um, and, of course, that was the crisis that emerged during the Harris period. We're mm-hmm. still paying for it if you look at your hydro bill. That's exactly right. Uh, I find, find it outrageous. You know, we have a small office, of course, and I think last month we used, uh, I kid you not, three-something dollars worth of electricity, and I had to pay $39. <laughs> okay, and that was, that was it. All, all the, I'm paying somebody else's debt. It's like going to Loblaws or some some grocery store, and you can't get in the door until you first contribute fifty bucks towards their debt or mortgage. Well, it's that's outrageous. The, that's the problem too with uh, wind power. Uh, they're uh, actually paying the, the folks who produce this wind power something oh, like boy. eleven cents per kilowatt hour, uh, but they only receive from the population something in the order of uh, used to be five cents. Now it's going up to seven cents per kilowatt hour. So it's a net deficit. We're we're hugely subsidizing these wind turbines. Amazing. Listen, we're, gonna, we're coming up near, geez, time's flying. We're going to take another break right now. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, polling in general and public opinion in general, some, some thoughts. And I think, uh, again, back to, yes, Prime Minister, we're going to hear a clip here. And I think coming out on the other side of the bumper, you will almost anticipate the question I'm going to ask by what you hear, especially as a pollster yourself. Uh, I'm sure it's a question on the minds of many people when they hear about polls and how, how can you really trust a poll. So we'll take a break and we'll be back right after this. It's the old logical fallacy. All cats have four legs. My dog has four legs. Therefore, my dog is a cat. (laughs) He's suffering from politicians' logic. Something must be done. This is something, therefore, we must do it. But doing the wrong thing is worse than doing nothing. Doing anything is worse than doing nothing. (laughs) After all, what is the one thing that obsesses politicians day and night throughout their careers? Well, obviously, publicity and popularity. Name in the paper, face on the telly. Anything which will help get themselves re-elected. Quite. Government is fame and glory and importance and big offices and chauffeurs and being interviewed by Terry Wogan. (laughs) Whereas opposition is impotence and insignificance and people at parties asking you if you know Robin Day. something new and radical in the broadcast. What, that silly grand design? Bernard, that was precisely what you had to avoid. How did this come about? I shall need a very good explanation. Well, he's very keen on it. What's that got to do with it? (laughs) Things don't happen just because prime ministers are very keen on them. Neville Chamberlain was very keen on peace. (laughs) (laughs) He he thinks thinks it's a vote winner. Ah, that's more serious. What makes him think that? Well, the party who had an opinion poll done, it seems all the voters are in favour of bringing back national service. Well, I have another opinion poll done showing the voters are against bringing back national service. <laughs> we can't be for it and oh, against... Of course they can, Bernard. Have you ever been surveyed? Yes. Well, not me, actually. My house. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, Bernard, you know what happens. Nice young lady comes up to you. Obviously, you want to create a good impression. You don't want to look a fool, do you? <laughs> no. No. So she starts asking you some questions. Mr. Woolley. Are you worried about the number of young people without jobs? Yes. Are you worried about the rise in crime among teenagers? Yes. Do you think there's a lack of discipline in our comprehensive schools? Yes. Do you think young people welcome some authority and leadership in their lives? Yes. Do you think they respond to a challenge? Yes. Would you be in favor of reintroducing national service? Yes. 
Oh, well, I suppose I might. Yes or no? Yes. Of course you would, Bernard. After all you've told you, you can't say no to that. <laughs> so, they don't mention the first five questions and they publish the last one. Is that really what they do? Well, not the reputable ones, no, but there aren't many of those. <laughs> so, alternatively, the young lady can get the opposite result. How? Mr. Woolley, are you worried about the danger of war? Yes. Are you worried about the growth of armaments? Yes. Do you think there's a danger in giving young people guns and teaching them how to kill? Yes. Do you think it's wrong to force people to take up arms against their will? Yes. Would you oppose the reintroduction of national service? Yes. <laughs> there you are, you see, Bernard. The perfect balanced sample. <laughs> so, we just commission our own survey for the Ministry of Defence. See to it, Bernard. And, of course, that's maybe how a lot of people look at surveys. Is there any truth to that, Kim? Well, you know, it's a great for a comedy show. <laughs> uh, the, the short answer is no. Uh, in, in fact, in the UK, by the way, some of the best market research in public opinion polling goes on in the world. Mm -hmm. So those folks are to do their work very well. And, and, and what do we do as pollsters? We have to sustain neutrality in our questions. So it's, it's wonderful to have that series of questions that will take you in some direction. Is there but, any truth to that, though? But, if, but if you ask you questions... But you can't like, get away with it. <laughs> no, you can't get away with it. And, and here's the reason. If I bias a result and I publish that result, and I get it wrong, people know it, and then you're a bad market researcher or a pollster. Yeah, but it seems that the more accurate you are, the better pollster you are. Indeed, yeah. And then, you know, the, your clients will come to you. Exactly. But if you say that this is the way that people feel, and so the uh, the, the, the um, producer or the, uh, the company goes out there and, and bases their market on what you just said, and it doesn't pan out, you're, you're going to have egg on your face. So you better be accurate. Well, actually, we don't have any measures of accuracy. I get your point. We don't have any measures of accuracy in our business. It's reliability and validity and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. But frankly, we, you know, to tell you inside stuff, we, we get pressure from clients all the time to pose questions that are going to produce the result they want. And I say, no, 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 I cannot do that. There are two functions here. I have to run a clean poll, and then when we're finished, we can do some of that hyped-up marketing. Okay, and they are two separate functions, but you've got to let me run that clean poll, and and each time they do, of course. So there's now, two oh, things, oh, and I can tell you, I will not run anything other than a clean poll. Now, just uh, <laughs> just using the skit we just heard, w weren't both of those polls quote unquote accurate in terms of reflecting the person's opinion? Um, like, you know, each time he, a he answered a series of questions that were posed, but the questions were totally fiction. You'd never pose those questions. I mean, that's just those, a comedy routine. Okay. No pollster would run those questions. But the person because, answer, but because the person why? They're leading questions. And everybody could see it. They're leading questions. They're taking that, that respondent or set of mm -hmm. respondents in a certain direction. And you can't do that. And <laughs> so how, what, how would you maybe have asked, uh, you know, the, the secretary there whether he agrees with conscription or not instead of the type of questions that were asked what, what huh? well I mean the, cl the classic question we we pose at Nordex to what extent do you favor or oppose such and such and uh, and so and then uh, they grade uh, a, a, not then just our, yes or no then but in our response that we say is it uh, very much favor somewhat favor somewhat oppose very much oppose don't know or refuse we have an exhaustive list of, of, uh, of responses available for respondents, and they get to choose one of them. For example, you know, bless the folks, for example, on our three options on taxation here, which mm -hmm. is to some extent possibly a hot-button issue. Um, there, there's really no option other than to have taxes go up, stay the same, or go down. 
and yet we have an option that says none of the above. So we allow those poor souls who are a little bit confused out there to say none of the above when we know it doesn't exist. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you know, you, you got to allow them not to be forced into a category or else it's, it's not a neutral poll. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have the category don't know or refuse. So we, we have an exhaustive list of options available. And then, of course, in our open-ended uh, questions, people can give us anything they want, and they do. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you know, a lot of people speak to me, especially since I'm involved with a small political party, when they talk about pollsters, um, sort of there's a push-pull with polls, especially during elections. And um, are people very swayed by what other people think? There seems to be a lot of social metaphysics involved there. And I, I, yeah. I rarely hear about or, or, or learn about push polling in Canada. It used to be a little bit of a favorite in the States up to maybe about five years ago, but they were so discredited that uh, the mainline political parties and campaigns don't use push polling anymore because, in effect, push polling is, is telemarketing, in effect, for a candidate. It, it, it's not polling. It's not surveying. Mm -hmm. It's it's it, it's pushing people to go to a certain direction. So it's got to be uh, you got to have a pretty uh, sort of a scientific based um, type of questions to get those exact answers. Like, what are what are the accuracy rates of pollsters? Are pretty high. Well, th theoretically, um, I mean, we uh, we don't rely on the um, the school plus or minus five percent, you know, ninety five times out of hundred stuff. It, it, that's just a theoretical answer. So uh, you know, we give that to clients, and that's and that's fine. The, the, the real issue is on what we call the validity measures. Have you posed the right questions? Have you done the right sampling? Mm -hmm. And it's in the sampling and the question posing that frankly is the science and the high art of polling. And I imagine that involves quite a bit of uh, work in statistics and... and um, well, to tell you the truth, uh, you have to have some, some statistical knowledge, but frankly a good undergraduate c could do a poll. I mean, theoretically. It requires a fair bit of experience, though, to do almost everything else related to that, getting the people to, uh, together, training your folks who do the interviewing and all of the rest of it. Uh, and the high art, of course, of polling is questionnaire design. On every questionnaire, you might see a dozen questions that, uh, that, that we produce, say, at Nordex. I spent six to eight hours figuring those, out those questions, what we call blue-skying the questionnaire. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes a long time. It's, uh, as Nitschke once said, you know, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. <laughs> uh, and that's what we do every we write a short letter every time we produce a questionnaire I, I know exactly what that's like the shorter the letter the longer the time it takes to For write sure. it and that's absolutely true and speaking of time believe it or not we're out of it it's um it's almost noon can you imagine? Uh, Kim, thanks very much for joining us. We didn't even get to a lot of the stuff we wanted to talk about, so I guess we're going to have to have you back again sometime well, in the future. My very great pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Robert, I guess you and I will be back next week, will we? Any oh, I look forward to Thursdays, Bob. Yes, I don't, we, we have no idea who will be here or what we'll be talking about, but we hope you'll be here next week. So please do join us next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, hey, be right Act right, think right, stay right, and be right here next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, it's good to be here, man. I, I'm trying to quit smoking cigarettes. Anybody trying to quit smoking cigarettes? No. You know, sir, what have you tried to make you stop? Uh, the patch. My wife got me the patch. It works, right? Six months. That's cool. Yeah, my wife got it had. It actually works, but it's so hard to drive a one eye. <laughs> it does work for you. <laughs>